Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Nothing static is sustainable, so it's thinking about no matter what is happening in the external environment and particularly those things you can't control, how do we, how have we set ourselves up as an organisation that can adapt? And I think um, we're seeing it, those that have a really strong overarching strategy which clarifies what they do and they don't do and why they're here and the impact that they create but then has flexibility underneath that. We're seeing strategy kind of evolve into strategic mindsets rather than necessarily core, de- core deliverables that happen in this kind of waterfall-like way. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. They are the go-to agency for any organisation with digital needs. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm super excited to bring you my conversation with Felicity Green. Felicity is the CEO of Spark Strategy, which she co-founded with Chairman George Liarcos and has worked at for nearly a decade. Spark is a proud B Corp and purpose-driven consultancy specializing in strategic planning, developing resilient business models, and measuring social impact. They help dynamic not-for-profit, business, philanthropic, and government organizations to create strategy for a better tomorrow. I became friends with Felicity about six years ago through the B Corp and purpose-driven business community. We always had the best conversations at events and shared a passion for helping organizations to grow and thrive by considering what is best for all stakeholders, not just the standard bottom line concerns. The stars aligned this year when an opportunity came up to join the team at Spark and I jumped at it. So things that stand out about Felicity, she's whip smart, bubbly, enjoys analyzing awkward social situations, much like myself, is very witty, respects a good pun and indulges my copious dad jokes and sarcastic banter. She's also just a great person that has done some amazing things in her short time on this planet. She has shaped Spark into a delightful, fun and fascinating place to work that is having a tangible impact in our community. Since we recorded this episode a few months ago, Felicity is now on mat leave and has given birth to a beautiful baby boy, Zach. I actually had no idea she was pregnant until she told me just prior to recording this episode a few months ago. So I respectfully ask you not to flood her with private messages or emails following this episode. Instead, feel free to direct any notes to me at mike at sparkstrategy.com.au and I'll pass them on. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Felicity as much as I did. So I am absolutely thrilled to be here with Flick Green. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here and to be sitting across from you as well after the year that we've had. I know, I know. To to be physically here in person, as we've discussed, is far superior to Zoom, Mm. and I'm glad we agree on that. 100%. (laughs) So before we kick off, as we customarily do in Humans of Purpose, tell us a bit about your journey to Spark. Yeah, it's been an interesting one, and it's trying to think about what's the starting point. And maybe with with most things, if we go right back, um, it does start with childhood, and I think a big part of what has shaped what I've wanted my career to be um, was actually my upbringing. So I grew up in a household where my dad was a philosophy and English lecturer and my mum was a scientist, you know, one of those trailblazing kinds. She was the first woman in the world to get her PhD in her area, et cetera. Um, And that meant that we had really good dinner table conversations. I can imagine. (laughs) I can only envy that. (laughs) 
So it was, you know, existentialism to ethics, etc. Deep into Immanuel Kant and, uh, you know. For sure. Mm. Absolutely. Um, but we were also very working class. So dad was doing three jobs at the same time that my mum was doing her PhD, etc. So I also got this kind of um, philosophy imbued in me of this hard work and just creating things on your own. So I had the privilege of a great education. Um, after school faced that question being an 18-year-old of, well, what are you going to study to get a job? Yeah. Thought, I have no idea what my vocation is going to be, so I did an arts degree. Classic. Which um, I'm actually really glad that I did yep. because at that age there's still a lot of the human condition to explore. I mean, now there's I th- I still a lot. Everyone, I think everyone should do an arts degree first. So I believe firmly the college US model. I think it's, you know, it's coming. Generalist, yep. yep. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Just, just get, people need to know about humanities, history, <laughs> arts, culture. Where, where else are you going to get that, like, kind of that um, personal and intellectual growth? Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I also did some of those weird, fun subjects as well, you know, cinematography and oh, Chinese yeah. calligraphy and oh, not yeah. all of that. But basically um, through uni I also supported myself with some, you know, quite mundane jobs, office jobs, bartending, that type of thing, which – was really good for me to learn that monotony is very is not good for my mental health. And I knew that I needed a career that was something which was different all the time. Um, I didn't know what consulting was at that age and time. And I sort of discovered it through some presentations at uni and thought, oh, that's something I want to do. But it's really hard to break into the job market into this very competitive management consulting arena with an arts degree. So I thought I need to learn a little bit about business Um, And I also wanted at the same time to have that big personal growth journey um, and be living in a place which was completely different to everything I was experiencing at the time, a place that would help me question assumptions that I didn't know that I had. I wanted to live in a really different culture. So I packed up and went to China and I moved to China and I spent a couple of years learning the language there it took a little bit longer than I anticipated. <laughs> How long did you think it would take? Oh, you know, I'd done it through <laughs> uni <of> <laughs> and gotten some good marks, but then when yeah. I arrived there, no one understood a word I said. Oh, man. Um, but then I did my MBA at Peking University. So is that in Peking? Yep. 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 So, um, which was a fantastic experience. Um, and did you live in Peking? I did. On campus? Or? Uh, I lived on campus and then I moved to something that's called a hutong, which is like the traditional style house with the four cornered walls and everything oh, like that. Amazing. It was a great experience. I must say, I saw on your LinkedIn that you went to Peking University. I was thinking like, <laughs> did she do? Did she choose Peking University and do it online from Australia or did she Did she speak Chinese? Like, what, what, How much do I not know about Flick Green? <laughs> It's a, it's an interesting one. Everyone goes, oh yeah, yeah, MBA from Peking University. All right. Was it taught in English or in Chinese? It was a mix. Okay, it wow. was a mix. So it was actually one of the reasons that I could get into the program because, as you know, with most MBAs, you need to have say five years full time work experience. And I, I kind of hustled my way in there, saying, "You call yourself an international program. You don't have any international students. I'll be your international student." That's hilarious. Yeah. So the hustle began there. Um, but I think what's important about that is. It was a country where inequity was so obvious. So I was living, you know, on one side of me, I had someone from a consulate who was, you know, opulent lifestyle. And on the other side, there were construction workers sleeping on the ground. And it just really didn't sit very well with me. But I became very, very aware of the social inequity in the world. 
Fast forward, I moved back to Australia and landed that dream job of management consulting, um, just corporate consulting, and thought I had it all sorted. I thought I had this career plan of I'll do this for five years, then I'll step into a senior position in industry and it'll be great. And then I started working on the projects and, you know, it was helping telecommunications organisations with 0.2% on their bottom line and mm. things like that and had this little little devil on my shoulder, maybe not a devil, but a little voice saying, is this really good enough? You know, you've seen inequity in the world. You have this burden of privilege of a great education. Um, so really you have to be doing something more with your skills. Um, it's what a lot of people, you know, do this finding purpose moment. Yeah. I actually had it quite early in my career. And so I thought, oh, but I love consulting. I love the problem solving. Yeah. I love not being bored. That's very good for me. And so I had a look around and I just couldn't see at that time any organisations that married the two, doing work for purpose but also in a consulting model. Um, I was very fortunate at the time to have a great relationship with one of the partners at the firm I worked at and so we decided to actually step out and start something new. And that's when we, we formed and we co-founded Spark Strategy and we didn't really know what we were doing at the time but we knew it was vaguely strategy and we sort of took the um, the simple path of saying, well, if it's for, for good and for purpose, let's focus on the not-for-profit sector. And it was actually quite interesting that when we were doing our discovery and through our first few clients, we realised there was a huge impact gap, I guess, within this sector in terms of strategy. We were seeing a lot of strategies that were just same as last year plus 10%. Um, and we saw a lot of strategy that was being driven by fear of funding. So we thought, actually, there's an opportunity here to integrate business model thinking, et cetera. Over the years, we've developed our practice to be a little bit more sophisticated in terms of we work across different sectors, still predominantly the not-for-profit strategy space, but we recognise there's levers that you can pull across philanthropy, government, corporate, et cetera, if we're really going to tackle some of these wicked problems. So I've actually almost sort of grown up in Spark in a way in terms of my career. Um, and you've gone right to the top as well. <laughs> gone, gone right to the top. Um, but, you know, I, I came in not having a huge amount of experience, of practical experience in consulting. So my journey was to first learn how to do that and become a great advisor. Mm. And then it was around, well, then starting that more of that ma managing people and growing the strategy practice and then just recently, so just over a year ago, then saying, okay, I'll step in and take the reins in terms of thinking about what's the overall picture, how do we play in the sector, how do we drive greater impact, how do we innovate what we're doing, et cetera. And that's where I've had the privilege yet of stepping into that CEO role. You said before that you didn't feel that you had much experience, but I believe that there are some ways that you can like hyper-learn or hyper-accelerate experience. And I think your MBA experience at Peking University, living in another country, speaking another language was a way that you can really cram probably like eight years into a, three years. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think there's also the point of realising that you don't necessarily have to be senior in the way that other people are in your industry. So there is no way that I could swan into a room and give, you know, some of the CEOs or board directors that we work with that confidence of I've seen it all before. That's not my style. My style is more 
go in and ask great provocative questions mm. and actually tie the concepts together and add value that way. Mm. And when that sort of clicked for me, that that's the path that I can add value with rather yeah. than the I've seen it all, you're in safe hands, that was a way that I could see my path to leadership. And I, I, th- I think a big element to what you do and what you do really well is the curiosity aspect and like being being like a lifelong learner and, you know, just, you know, asking good questions is yeah. it, it's such an underrated, it's such an like an underrated skill. Absolutely. Um, really, when you talk about consulting and strategy, we'll get to more detail about that, but I, I think such a big part of it is um, reading the room, reading the environment and being able to ask the right questions at the right time. And being able to ask the stupid questions as well. Mm-hmm. I find particularly when you're working with boards, boards are fantastic, but a governance model is a little bit strange when you have all these people that they probably only come together, say, 12 times a year maximum, mm-hmm. and yet they're meant to be the custodians of strategy, to have all this fiduciary responsibility, et cetera. I realise a lot of the times when I'm working with them, not everyone feels 100% safe and secure, that they're up to speed. So having someone else come in and say, what does that mean? Can you explain that? Why do we do it that way? Can sometimes break a bit of that down and then everybody can start contributing in what they've been brought in for. And I think the not-for-profit consulting model is the perfect safe space creator for that board executive divide. Um, because there's always there's always some misunderstanding or misallocation of roles and responsibilities, and the the governance model is it's good, but it's not a complete solution. And you know, in a way, you can really unlock so much value in just getting that right, you know, that getting the the right fit or alignment between board and executive. Totally, and and really keeping that strategic conversation at the board level without sliding down into totally. operations, which happens a lot. Totally. So, what does being a sparky mean for you? Being a sparky, um, I love that question and sometimes I forget that when I haven't really introduced myself to people properly and then they think I'm an electrician when yep, I describe totally. myself <laughs> as a sparky. <laughs> but being a sparky um, really just means um, maybe if I share some of our values, it helps uh, sort of describe the way that we live in the world. Um, first of all, it's about choosing love, not fear, and that's all about saying, look, there is a way. We, we are in these societies with really, really complex and challenging problems and all these incredible individuals that have imposter syndrome and are holding themselves back and there's just there's fear in, in a lot of different um, altitudes and aspects and it's saying, well, actually, let's just put that aside and give things a crack. So one of the things about being a sparky is not really subscribing to that philosophy that, oh, well, if it, if it hasn't been done, it's because it's not possible. It's having this kind of entrepreneurial flair. Test, learn, adapt kind of methodology. Absolutely. It's more about having strategic mindsets rather than necessarily sort of these traditional pathways with outputs, et cetera. Yep. Um, probably something that's really important to me is that there's also joy in the work. I'm a very big believer in this idea of work as productive play. Um, we spend probably the majority of our life at work and we get brought in to add value with clients and I think having an enjoyable process, not a frivolous one, Mm. not one where we feel like we're wasting our time and infantilizing workplaces and things Mm. like that, but one where we're actually being aspirational first, creative first and then testing later, um, I think actually can drive some really wonderful outcomes it's about caring for your teammates and your clients. It's about not accepting any crap, not sort of getting, you know, 
are tied up in in politics, and I don't mean politics from the from the um, you know the government yeah. sense. I just mean all those other office things, politics. office politics, yep. competition, all the things. Basically, we've built our model on all the things that we really didn't resonate with in our previous work lives. It's very cool. It is cool. It's very cool. It's, and it's, it's very, fun. Um, what I like about it is I, th- I find it very human. Mm. Um, and I just listened to a podcast on my, I was walking with Cyril earlier and we were, uh, well, I said we weren't listening. I was listening. Cyril <laughs> oh, was probably was just too. walking. <laughs> but um, it, it was Daniel Goldman, the, the writer of Emotional Intelligence, and he was talking, he was reflecting about how when he went, to his high school reunion, you know, you would expect that the person who's most successful would be the, the ducks of the school or whatever. And then, like, it's invariably not. It's just the, the person who's the most enjoyable to be around who wasn't necessarily a high achiever at school is is killing it in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's about feeding off that energy as well. We, um, we have another value that's your success is my success, and I really love that. It's nothing about this competition um, we're all, you know, really strive for excellence, but not at the expense of each other yeah, as well. So like, that human bit. You have like a very almost like a Buddhist flair to, to what you do or a spiritual flair because I, I, I think um, you are, therefore I am, is Ubuntu, right? Yep. Is that where it comes from? That yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. It's interesting because um, I've, I obviously can't speak for all members of the team, but um, for myself, I'm not a traditionally religious person, but one thing that has been a really important part of my journey is a lot of this exploration around self and the universe, whether it's reading things from quantum physics to other things. And it's we start every Monday morning, a different person will host our weekly meetings and, and people bring something which is thought-provoking or inspirational to share. And it's really great we hear different bits of poetry or TED Talks or things like that that just make us think about it and we try and practice during the, the week whatever we've learnt. And so I just feel, yeah, very privileged to be able to be in a, in a, in a workplace culture that allows for some of that as that's, well. That's very cool. Very cool. We don't all sit around singing Kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> sure you don't. <laughs> you only don't because it's COVID unsafe. Well, that's true. That's otherwise. true. No hand-holding. Yep. <laughs> um, I'm curious a bit about B Corp and yep. also sort of being an ethical consultancy. Yep. And, I mean, clearly you're – positioning yourselves as a consultancy that is a bit more um, into human insights and um, behaviour and um, personality and all that kind of stuff. Mm. How does that kind of resonate Mm. with you and your thinking? Being part of the B Corp community has been really fantastic for us. I think we've we've recertified a couple of times now, so it's meant different things along our journey. Um, I think at the start it was really nice in terms of almost finding our tribe, so realising that we weren't the only ones out there mm. that, were, that were thinking we can use business as a force for good, we can balance profit and purpose, they're not mutually exclusive, mm. et cetera. I think as time has moved on it's been wonderful in terms of just growing those networks of people. Um, we've, it's been fantastic. We've been recognised um, to be in the top 10% a couple of, that, of times for the way we treat our workers oh, in yeah. the workers category. Um, I think it's becoming valuable now because now people are understanding what B Corps are. At the start, it was a big education process. I agree. We're a B Corp. What does that mean? Yeah. And now it's, oh, you've gone through that rigorous international yeah. audit and what you're saying about profit and purpose isn't just marketing guff. You must be pretty <laughs> decent kind of peoples. Exactly. And I think probably for myself, particularly stepping into this leadership role, 
the greatest thing that I've got from the community has been connecting with other contemporary leaders, so others that are that are trying to enact things like new power models, not trying to be traditional top-down, trying to really have distributed leadership, collective goals, things like that. I found there's been a great network of almost peer mentors that's been wonderful to tap into. And so to get to the heart of it, I mean, it is. it looks by example like it's entirely possible to be an ethical consultancy. Does that mean certain trade-offs in your own operating model? Not as much as you would think. I remember speaking to a lot of um, more traditional conservative business people when I was starting out and they were saying, what, you're basing your business model off charging not-for-profits? One, is that ethical? And two, is it feasible? And it's a really interesting question. So we basically had to ensure that if we were taking money from the social sector, that what we're doing is having an impact. So we're very, very rigorous in going back and engaging and finding, you know, what was the most significant change? Where did we fail? Mm. Where, what could be improved, et cetera? Um, in terms of our business model ourselves, we just cut out the things about consulting that we didn't agree with. So we don't do by the, by the minute watching the clock, timesheets, everything like that. It's always about you agree what the outcome is and we deliver to that value. And then we do have a bit of a cross-subsidization model where we will do a pro bono percentage for our not-for-profit clients but we won't for our corporate clients, et cetera. And we've actually been successful from day one from our own business model perspective on that. Um, I think because we entered the market with a little bit of a different proposition mm. and probably not as expensive as some of the the larger consulting firms as yeah. well. And I, and I think there's a, there's a bit of a dangerous um, culture that happens where uh, when a lot of the big four consultancies were doing pro bono work for not-for-profits, they were not putting their top people on that work and they were really it was the last last in kind of you know outputs yeah so that and you know and even the low bono model that they were running was equally i think frustrating for a lot of not for profits you know you've got um big fours you've got the you know the brand mark on the output but it's probably just not given the same respect that it really needs for the sector Yeah, I think we've um, purposely built quite a senior-led team as well because um, I've been and I've lived in that leveraged model as well where you get a partner who sells a piece of work and they'll maybe rock up to the workshops, but, you know, your grad is doing all of the analysis behind the scenes. And sometimes the work is so segmented that nobody's solving the whole problem. They're just analysing that report or building that. And it's just really like that, you know, so they could signature at the bottom, you know, kind of That's thing. right. And look, I understand that there are still many boards that need that kind of stamp of approval, that compliance consulting. That's not who we work with anyway. We want to work with bold leaders who really want to look at how they can transform exactly what role they should be playing and their part, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's a very different proposition. Mm. Um, there is some great work that comes out of the big consulting firms, absolutely, and sometimes you do need those big teams and that scale for a really big piece. Um, but we kind of play at the edges um, for those that are looking for something completely different. And what's it been like? I mean, 2020 has just been a catastrophic <laughs> kind of period for most. Um, how has that impacted upon how you run Spark and the, mm. the type of work you're doing and even your approach to markets? Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, being strategists, when there was hints that um, COVID was going to be what it was going to be, we thought let's trial a week from home and see how we're set up, you know, how resilient we are as a business. 
So we did a trial run and then we never went back. (laughs) I think, you know, like many, we've gone through ups and downs in our journey. Um, There was a big learning curve about how we take what's essentially a very human interaction style business online. Um, Very fortunate that there's some great tools out there. Mm. So, you know, we've been able to do digital whiteboards and all these sexy things. Um, I myself have really missed some of that interaction. I think we were speaking about a little bit earlier where you can feel the energy in the room. Makes a huge difference. Such a difference. I believe there's oxytocin elements to it as well of just human interaction, like purely from a scientific perspective, being in a room and seeing someone react to you live um, as as kind of selfish, mm. th- selfish as that may sound, is is that feedback mechanism is I think critical to collective learning. It absolutely mm. is, and it's easier to read it. And we actually found we had to adopt some of our questions. So when you're on a Zoom screen and there's just the kind of Brady Bunch style eight eight faces on a screen, you can't really kick off with big questions like. What problem do you exist to solve? <laughs> what is your purpose? Yeah, and, and people, no one will answer. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a bit of a learning curve there around how we actually evoke the insights that we need. Um, for the team, we all had a really mixed experience. Some of us were fortunate to, you know, live in houses, not have to homeschool, not be in share houses. Others weren't like that. Mm. So we made sure that we were staying really connected, checking in from that mental health perspective. And in terms of business, um, it was one of those weird, almost counter-cyclical things where all of a sudden everybody needed to rethink their strategy anyway. Yep. So we we're actually super busy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that's yeah. very exciting. And it, it is. It was, that sort of help, helps me to segue to my, my next series of questions. Mm. And, and um, maybe a good starting point would be what are the some of the key challenges facing not-for-profits right now? Yeah. I think um, probably the, the key challenge is around how do we plan? How do we create strategy in such uncertainty? Um, obviously, the COVID climate has not affected not-for-profits in, in a uniform way. Um, some were hit early and then they've innovated and, and bounced back. Others had large government contracts that saw them through um, and some all of a sudden lost their core value propositions and they couldn't do face-to-face delivery, for example. Um, I think what we're seeing, obviously, job keepers ending and that's going to have a bit of a fallout for many organisations, but we're seeing organisations that have really tired staff. I think an employee, strong employee value proposition is really important at the moment. Mental health is more important than ever at the moment. Um, But I think a lot of it comes back to business models and many not-for-profits dug into their corpus last year. Um, You know, a corpus is meant for a rainy day and it was pretty rainy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I think we're seeing a bit of a difference here between those that drew down on their corpuses with an idea of how to invest in innovation and change for yeah. the future and those that just did it hoping that we'll find a way back to the yeah. status quo. I'll give you what I think is an example of how two very different not-for-profits, maybe archetypes, responded to COVID. Yep. One, the board panicked, the executive panicked, and everyone just did, went into full COVID safe planning. The other one saw an opportunity for a changed environment, receptive, listened, yep. and took bold action into new markets to solidify their model. Did you see it? Could, could, not, could not have said it better myself. Yep. I think we did see a period where everybody was just had to figure out how to get everybody safely home. Yep. And then depending on the leadership, leadership at executive and board level, it went one of those two pathways. Yep. I think a lot of not-for-profits probably have spent the better part of six months to a year just trying to be COVID safe yeah. and have lost a huge opportunity to actually be dynamic, innovate and lead. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think now we're seeing, okay, everyone's kind of used to to the situation that we're in, so now's the time to act. And it's I'm seeing a lot of CEOs that have been coming off the back of many years of success now have to stand in front of their boards and say, do you know what, this next year is going to be a deficit budget, mm-hmm. but this is why. And I think those leaders that are having those conversations are actually the ones that are, are setting themselves up for the, you know, the best path for the future. They're saying, this is how we're going to innovate our partnerships. This is how we're going to explore fee-for-service. This is what we're going to advocate to government for to leverage this policy, et cetera. So, so, so maybe one key theme to come out of all of this catastrophe for not-for-profits and other organisations is resilience. Mm. What do you make of all of that? Mm, absolutely. I think... I love that we're calling it resilience now and not sustainability because yeah. I think that the nothing nothing static is sustainable. So it's thinking about no matter what is happening in the external environment and particularly those things you can't control, how do we how have we set ourselves up as an organization that can adapt? And I think um we're seeing it those that have a really strong overarching strategy which clarifies what they do and they don't do and why they're here and the impact that they create, but then has flexibility underneath that. We're seeing strategy kind of evolve into strategic mindsets rather than necessarily core core deliverables that happen in this kind of waterfall-like way. We're seeing organisations say we're focusing on these three things and we're going to trial, test, learn in all of those. These are our hypotheses and this is how we'll change. I think the other important component is they need to have a really robust business model. Those that have just a single source of revenue, um, obviously that's not resilient if something major changes there. Mm. Um, Obviously we had very generous support from federal government through COVID. Um, JobKeeper's ending now. So those that are still on that and those that had just government contracts and haven't done anything else to build up the other revenue streams, um, they're, they're not so resilient. We're seeing partnerships, similar thing. Um, I have the pleasure of being on the board of WaterAid Australia. We have an incredible partnership with Who Gives a Crap. Um, something good came They're out of people hoarding. Space. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, that's say something good came out of toilet paper hoarding. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We ended up obviously being the the main beneficiary of the profits of Who Gives a Crap for last year. So it's saying but we're protecting that relationship because we're demonstrating our impact all the time. Mm-hmm. So preserving those relationships, I think, again, diversifying out for more. If if not-for-profits are on the look for new partners, we've been saying it for a long time, but we're not seeing it in practice, these ideas of shared value. I think we're still seeing a lot of not-for-profits go and ask for the altruistic ask yep. instead of decoding a CSR. Please, sir, can I have some more? <laughs> That's it's exactly. <laughs> have like this empty bowl and it's so it's so outdated and you know there are some really great strategies to just look at what the commitments of of a private sector organization are and basically say you can outsource your impact to us you're going for sdg6 we can map ours to SDG yes. 6 too. I like you brought up the sustainable development Mm. goals because I think they're a vital point of unity and collaboration Absolutely, they are. And I think we took a really long time to start having that conversation in Australia. Mm. 
and now we're getting there. At first it was just yeah. in the international development space. I feel like in Australia we take, we're like on an um, Adelaide like time delay where it's like stuff just takes longer to filter through here and then it happens and it's like, whoa, this happened like four years ago in America. <laughs> it's really interesting but I think encouragingly COVID actually helped us see a few social innovation frameworks being brought to life. So if we think about all the cool stuff that happens in Scotland, in the Netherlands and, and, and things like that, we actually saw some groups come together and try and translate that. So we've got, for example, Regen Melbourne, which has a cross-sector partnership at the moment between philanthropists, impact investors, councils, et cetera, and they're thinking how do we actually bring donut economics as a place-based solution mm. to life? So I find that really encouraging oh, yeah. as something that's come out of COVID and is almost taking this concept of resilience that you spoke about to the community level rather than just the organisational level as yeah, well. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't have to just apply to diversifying revenue streams. Like I like what you said about strategic partnerships, yep. um, doubling down on relationships is really important Absolutely. and identifying those areas of shared value too. Yeah, Absolutely. And then there is the sort of a little bit scarier area of commercialisation, which is still very polarising in the sector. Um, we still have quite a lot of this... Um, this idea that profit is a dirty word and you're selling yourself out. But we've seen through necessity with COVID, a lot of people come to that understanding of, oh, no, actually, if we're creating surplus, that allows us to do more good. And it's all about separating your beneficiary from your customer. So, no, you're not going to charge that homeless person for a service, but maybe you have really great IP and someone in another country wants to license that off you or white label it or something like that. And I think there's getting a stronger sophistication of what some of that financial resilience can mean. And it's not at the detriment of your impact. It's actually to further it. How do you see the sort of state of ethical business evolving in Australia and, and also in respect of that, the role of government mm. and philanthropy in sort of promoting that? Yeah, I think um, – We've seen it from consumers, particularly younger consumers, that that's what they want. I think we're seeing some really promising signs from the social procurement perspective. So I was working with a disability organisation recently and one of their big business development strategies was actually to approach manufacturers in their area who are going for these big government contracts which have a social procurement clause on them that they have no idea how to fulfil. And so they're basically saying we can be the social value. And you're able to connect with workers that then satisfy um, different criteria that's there. And I think there's a few initiatives like that which are going to give us a few quantum leaps. Philanthropy, I think, is so precious and so amazing in fueling the innovation. So philanthropy is generally a smaller pot of money, but we're seeing a lot of more sophisticated philanthropists really come in with that seed funding mentality and giving a bit of that runway to businesses that want to try things out. And try different things as well. I mean, I'm very thankful that Cooper Investors got behind me to produce the Mental Wealth series. Wonderful. And, you know, that you, you don't see that often, like a philanthropic organisation or fund to support a podcast. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty incredible. And That is incredible. Going for different sorts of outcomes, attitude change, awareness, education, um, behaviour change maybe as well. But sure. um, yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that in this sort of new environment, there has to be an exploration of new avenues too and, and adaptation. Absolutely, there has to be. And what I think is there's so much space to scale this and explore further. I feel like we have a few bold leading philanthropic organisations here 
Um, and the rest, we've got this whole, this untapped money in private ancillary funds and things like that, which hasn't yet been unlocked to start to do some more of these interesting, innovative things. So I think it's a space where if we can get philanthropists working together more, we could leverage that capital. Um, and it's, yeah, it's exciting. Super exciting. Now, one thing that I'm sort of pegged on that we sort of touched <laughs> on before was how does one do good strategy in uncertain times? Mm. It's a really good question. And I think the main point is we can't use the uncertainty that we're in to just bury our head in the sand. That's step one. That's step one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually a really exciting time because we can let go of a lot of our sacred cows, a lot of it the we've always done it this way. So that's what we're going to build on because everything is up in the air. So I think fundamentally strategy should still start with the really big, almost esoteric questions of who are we, why do we exist, what change do we want to see in the world and what's our role in that. Um, and then I think from there it's around being flexible and having more scenario analysis basically. We've actually got a year of data now around working in uncertainty. So it's looking back and having a bit more of a reflective stage. What did we learn through COVID? What changed in our client, beneficiary, customer needs? And how do we actually embed that agility so that if the vaccine rollout doesn't go as planned or if actually going online instead of face-to-face -face opened up the rural remote opportunity or we can have a workforce with overseas professionals as well, all of those types of things, it's looking a little bit more externally and what I find a lot of people fall over in strategies, they do something like a pest analysis where they go, oh, political, we might have a change of government, economics, this might happen, et cetera. But then they forget to say, so what? So does that, does that present to us a risk or an opportunity? And therefore, what are our strategies to either mitigate or leverage that? So I think there's, it's, it's an exciting time for strategy, but we're not necessarily going to see solid five-year plans that, that last that long. It's let's set the frame and then let's keep having continuous improvement conversations. Love it. Love that approach. Now, one thing that I think is interesting that's come from the past year's data is people's change preferences around um, wanting to either be in the office or at home. And I think the latest research that I've seen says that most firms are sort of adopting a two or three days in the office, two or three days flexible yep. um, from home kind of setup. How has that been for you and your team? And where do you sort of see that kind of equilibrium going? forward yeah I think we're doing the best of both worlds at the moment so we're going into the office one day a week if people feel like it we just sort of chat to each other on teams and say oh, I think I'm going in tomorrow who else is going to be there um, that's been really nice I think particularly for some of our more junior staff who miss out on that learning just by hearing conversations and some of those physical whiteboard sessions and things like that um, our clients are actually also wanting to do, particularly when we've got ideation sessions or visioning workshops or things like that, they're wanting that to be face-to-face. -face. So we're back on the road a little bit, you know, maybe once or twice a week and the rest of the time people are working from home. And I think that's been a wonderful balance. We actually had to do a little bit of a reflection on not working too hard from home because we were jamming, you know, every 15-minute block was filled. Yeah, that's the danger. That's the danger. I think that um, that blurred line between what is protected home time and what is work time, and once that line dissolves, which I think it increasingly was anyway before COVID, um, 
you kind of have to rely on your own judgment of when it's okay to switch off. Completely. And uh, part of the, I think the employer's role is to sort of say, hey, look, you know, after whatever time, that's your time. That's right. And, and you know, be, you've got to also exercise some judgment in saying, you know, for me to be my best, I need some downtime. Exactly. And that was exactly the conversation that we had. It was around people taking responsibility for their own time and, and what brings out the best in them, but also us creating some good boundaries. Yep. So, you know, we, I purposely, you know, I'm, I'm myself, if I'm writing emails after hours, I don't schedule them to send till the next day because you have to set that example yeah. and things like that. You, you mean you do schedule them to send the next yes, day? Yep. Yes, yes. Yep. So, you yep. know, if I'm writing it, if I do happen to be working at 8 yep. or something, I'll, I'll set it for 8 Which is a fantastic feature and I would recommend anyone listening to do the same thing mm. because it, there's nothing, I think, more offensive than getting a late after hours email because, you know, of course – Everyone has pop-up notifications in their phone. No one's changing that, let's be honest. So you're going to see the email, whereas the courteous thing to do, you can send it at a time, like every email application now allows you to stagger or delay an email. So it comes in at a nice time, you know, 9.05, 9.10, lovely. And it's also, I think, as you would know, Mike, also having done consulting as Mm. well, there's this really insidious cultural thing of you have to be working all the time yeah. or you're not really a serious consultant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's ridiculous. You burn out. Yeah. And so it's about setting that example totally. as well. Totally respect. Mm. Hey, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much Loved for coming. It. No, thank you so much for having me. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah, they can obviously always link in. I find LinkedIn is just this incredibly powerful tool. I love it. Um, oh, there's always our website and then just reaching out via email, the info at Spark Strategy, if you ever want to have a chat about anything social change. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 